0: You were deaf. You were mute. You were blind. But not anymore. And the reason is because the kingdom of God is not going to hide. It's not going to stop. And it's going to totally surprise you. Do you remember two weeks ago when I introduced that series, I said the word surprise just does not cut it. I don't even know how in English to say it right. Uh, let's go to the end of the story we just heard read a moment ago. Verse 37 in Proverbs chapter 7. This will be on page 843 of your Pew Bible. And in the middle of the text, we're actually going to look at completely in this service. But it was, again, all we heard read a moment ago. And it's what the first sermon was mostly about. I just want you to see verse 37. It says, and they, it's the crowds, were astonished Beyond measure, it goes by pretty fast as I read it out loud, and you're all standing to listen. But let three words astonished beyond measure Uh, it's going to surprise you, just doesn't cut it. It's gonna astonish you, just doesn't cut it. I think if I were speaking on the street, I would have to say something like it's going to blow you away, but that just sounds kind of profane when I'm talking about the kingdom of God, right? I mean, it's, it's more than even that not going to hide, not going to stop, and going to cause you to marvel beyond measure. Because this seed, who God the Father has planted in the soil of this earth, Jesus of Nazareth, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak, an unheard of thing, unheard of. Our goal today is to get through those stories that led to this, to know what happened right before and why that leads into these stories, and then to get through the back end, which you haven't heard read. This is the healing of the 4,000. And then this little bit to close the morning, uh, verse 11 and 12 of chapter 8. I want to start there, though, because it's also the middle of the whole thing. I'm going to read it. I'm going to explain that to you in a moment. Okay, so it says uh, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him. The whole story up to this point is he left the Pharisees Wednesday. They were arguing with him. He leaves the country. He goes to Tyre and Sidon. He goes to where the pagans are to get away from the Pharisees. Here they are. (laughs) They can't leave him alone. They came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply. It's Jesus having feelings right there. He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, remember how I, I talked about Mark makes these sandwiches of story, story sandwiches? He'll start one story. And then he'll just cut it off and he'll tell you another story in the middle. And then that'll be over and it'll come right back and he'll finish the first story. And you're supposed to kind of see them as one big hole. Okay. So what's going on right now is he's, he's giving you some, like, uh, what do they call those? Sliders. You've had some sliders, right? Or you just had meat and bread, right? Uh, but what he's doing now is he's going to put lettuce, tomato, cheese, right? He's going to add layers to the sandwich. So we're going to look at the Bible, the Pew Bible, in your hands from like a, a bird's eye view here for a moment, starting with this bit about the Pharisees demand the sign, because that's the meat in the middle of everything. Okay, The sandwich he's making, that's the meat. The opening, the bread, is this Syrophoenician woman. We'll talk about her, but she's this woman who shouldn't believe in Jesus, but she does. And so the main thrust of the story is that she confesses him for who he is. Now, the the other piece of that piece of bread, that's on page, uh, page 844. This is Peter confessing Jesus as the Christ. So you have a story that begins with this woman confessing Christ for who he is. It's going to close with Peter confessing Christ for who he is. Right after the woman confesses Christ, he's going to heal a man who is both deaf and mute right before peter confesses the christ can you see it there starting at verse 22 he's going to heal a man who is blind okay so you got confessing of the christ you got miraculous healings of basic elements of humanity and then you have two more pieces before you get to the meat on the one side you have the feeding of the four thousand not the 5,000, the four. We'll we'll talk about that too. You get the feeding of the 4,000. On the other side, you have this conversation about the leaven of the Pharisees, which is really about hypocrisy, but his disciples think it is about bread. So, So again, on the outside, confessions of Christ, just inside, major healing events, just inside, something about bread and Jesus. And right in the middle, you Pharisees ask for a sign and you won't get one. Now, there's also a big difference between this very moment in Mark and this same moment in Matthew, enough so that I want to tell you what Matthew says, because I think it, uh, it makes it more gospel, frankly, right? Uh, Matthew says, uh, this, son, this generation will not be given a sign except for one. And that one sign, which will be given, is he calls it the sign of Jonah, And he says that just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That is, you want me to prove that I'm who I say that I am? Kill me. See what happens. A little aside, if you don't believe in the story of Jonah because you're one of those types who think the Bible can not be true, uh, well, what is he talking about then? If Jonah wasn't in the fish for three days, was the son of man in the earth for three days is the whole thing a metaphor. Again, liberals aren't worth your time. They really aren't. They're distractions to you. And by a liberal, I mean biblical liberals. They don't believe the Bible is true. Not worth your time. In any case, the Pharisees demand a sign. They ask Jesus to prove who he is. And so far as Mark is concerned, he says, you will never believe me. I won't even give it to you. You're faithless. You're faithless already. Now that's where our text is going to end. But remember, that's sort of the meat in the middle on either side of confessions that he's the Christ, of him doing miraculous deeds, of him being the bread from heaven. And then what's going to happen next? After this sandwich, you just eat this whole sandwich of there are no signs. And next thing he's going to do, can you see it on page 844? He's going to tell everyone that he has to die on a cross and rise again. He's going to start telling that story openly and plainly until it happens. It's a whole turn in the direction of the gospel. Yeah? So that's where we're headed. We're going to go back now and, and pick up the whole thing from the beginning, going line by line, remembering that the major conversation that happened right before this is that it is not what goes into you that makes you clean, right? Um, or I should say unclean. Uh, it's not what goes into you that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of you. And so the evil of mankind isn't a matter of hand washings, nor even of sacrificing bulls and goats. None of that's good enough. Try stretching and sitting on a mountaintop, staring at the sun that's all beautiful and nice, but it's not going to clean you. Because out of you, come evil thoughts, covetous eyes, hunger for more, dissatisfaction. You know, uh, you see someone who has something good happen. And one of the first things you think is, "Oh man, why not me? Right? That's who we are. And Jesus has made it plain that that's the real problem he's here to fix. From this, we have verse 24. And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, hey, we can use our maps. How exciting. We got our maps. i pull that thing out in front of you. I still kind of have to point a little bit, but uh, right by this word Israel at the top. Remember, there's two kingdoms in the Old Testament that come out of David's kingdom, Israel and Judah. To the northwest of them, you see an area labeled as Phoenicia, Phoenicia. And the Phoenicians were not the Philistines. They're older than the Philistines. They've been there longer. You can look, the Philistines are to the southwest where Gaza is and Joppa is. That's the Philistines. By the way, take all of the vowels out of Philistine and put that word together. What do you get? You get P-L-S-T-N, Palestine. It's an old, old conflict here, okay? The Palestinians are descended kind of uh, heritage-wise from Philistia hence the trouble. Phoenicia, again, a different group of people, sea-bearing peoples mainly, and you can see how, why are they sea-bearing? There are two great cities, Tyre and Sidon are right there on the coast. And Tyre particularly was sort of a marvel of the ancient world. I mean, I don't know, do you think today that we could, could, as Americans, build a stone-walled city on Lake Michigan, in the water. Because that's kind of tired, right? It's up on the water. They've done work to level and make it so there's a stone wall all the way around. The only way in the city is by boat or by the main gate. So that when the tribes of Israel arrives under Joshua's command, but it's no longer Joshua, by the time that this tribe gets up there, and I do believe it's Dan, but I could be wrong. You can see Dan is very close by on the map. Well, they get there. And they see the walls and they decide not to even try. I mean, forget Jericho. I know what happened, but you know, this is different now. You know, it's, times have changed. <laughs> if we don't change, we'll die. It sounds familiar. Uh, so they don't conquer Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon, Phoenicia, become this thorn in the flesh of ancient Israel, ever a burden, and certainly the heart of great evil when it comes to, say, witchcraft and sorcery. So that it is indeed Jezebel, the daughter of the sorcerer king of Sidon, who marries Ahab and brings over those 400 prophets of Baal and makes it her goal via her daughter, who she marries into the line of Judah to exterminate the house of David once and for all. And there's a whole story about Athaliah and all that. Tyre and Sidon, bad places so far as Jews are concerned. Places Jews don't go. They don't go there. They avoid these places because they're unclean and they're dangerous. And yet here is here is the Christ, the son of the almighty God, leaving Galilee to go to Tyre and Sidon. Why on earth would he be doing this? Yeah, And can I suggest it's pretty simple. He's tired. He's tired. He's been trying to get a nap or a meal for a while, <laughs> uh, days. And he can't go anywhere without someone grabbing his shirt and pulling on it. Give me a miracle. And while that's all a confession of their faith, as an actual man, he's exhausted. He's exhausted. And so he goes to a place where he does not want anyone to know it. That's the next line. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know. I just need five minutes to breathe here a little bit. And yet... Do you remember the parables from just a couple of days ago? The lamp on the stand, the seed in the ground, and the mustard seed? Yeah, not going not gonna to hide. He wants to be hidden. Not going to happen. Yeah, He's also not going to stop. And again, they're going to marvel by the end of these stories. Verse 25, immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the thing I'm going to say next is harsh, but it's true. This woman has no right to come and ask Jesus for anything. She is Syrophoenician. She is one of these people who, if God's word had been believed on by the people of Dan, she wouldn't even exist. Her forebears would have been destroyed and they would have deserved it. Because they were the evil, they worship demons. In fact, she's got a demon in her house and she deserves that too. Because I, I hate to break the ice if you've never figured this out, but if you're not in Christianity, you're worshiping demons. And eventually you're calling to the demons to come to you, which they do very intentionally in witchcraft and other places. Well, they're going to answer. That's why you go to the fortune tellers that have a demon talk to you. Don't you know that? Don't do it, right? It's a bad idea, but this is it. She lives amongst the people where this is their religion and there's a demon. So it's like, lady, this is what you dug. This is what you built. This is who you are. And he effectively says this much to her, right? Uh, uh, He says, it's down in verse uh, 27, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, the issue here is not that he's calling her a woman, a dog. The issue here is he's calling everyone who's not a Jew, a dog. Do you remember what David says to Goliath? You uncircumcised dog. There is in ancient Judaism a rightful understanding that they're special That God did come to them first, that the Christ will come from their line. And that gospel for the Jew first, then for the Gentile, as Paul says it, is just a fact. There's no way around it. Now, we can kind of soften this a little bit in that, why is Jesus giving this bread, these miracles, to the Jewish people at this time? What's he doing with these miracles, right? He is demonstrating that he is the son of God, right? To the religious establishment that increasingly does not believe he's the son of God. He keeps doing more miracles, lifting up his power more and more, creating conflict, which is gonna lead them to kill him. It's very clear in John's gospel, they kill him because he raised Lazarus. That's why I did Other gospels, there's other pieces. They've been plotting to kill Jesus since chapter two or three, remember that? Go to destroy him. He healed a man on the Sabbath, but he healed a man. So Jesus is here throwing out this bread from heaven of miracles so that he'll get killed. So he's like, you know, lady, I'm here to rest. I'm not really here to make everyone's life better right now. I'm making their life better right now to prove that they don't believe it so that they'll kill me, and then life will be better for everyone because there's a whole new kingdom that's coming, right? There's this whole reign of resurrection and the Spirit of God. And don't miss that, by the way. When he says to her, I want to read it, uh, let the children be fed first, he says. He doesn't say I'll never feed you. Can you imagine, like, in the back of his head, Jesus is like, just, just wait, I'm going to totally heal your daughter after I rise from the dead through St. Paul when he comes through. Hang on like it's not as though god doesn't have a plan no he does he just isn't here to throw out miracles left and right and he's actually trying to get away from it for just a moment he says no lady you know right now it's it it just isn't the right time and yet she meets him with these words right yes lord he says no she says yes how good are you at that you're talking someone goes no You're like yeah No, none of us do that, right? We don't like to be told we're wrong and that she says, yes, Lord, you're absolutely right. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. And you didn't come to give this to me now. But you're standing here and you're the son of God. So (laughs) uh, can't I have the crumb? Here you are. And it's even more real than that. If he's trying to get away from all the conflict in Galilee, trying to get a little reprieve from the people who are trying to test him with every other word. Indeed, the crumb has fallen off the table. And she's just sitting there. Can I please eat it? And he says, for this statement, you may go your way. Did he twinkle in his eye at that moment? What was it? Was he smiling? Was he stern? Was he kind of standing? I don't know. But her faith in who he is is not swayed by who she is. Should I say that again? That's maybe the most important thing all day. Her faith in who he is is not swayed by who she is. She's still going to believe in him. And the result is, who is he? The God of mercy. That's what she's going to get. Mercy. Go your way. The demon's left your daughter. She went home, found the child lying in the bed. Demon gone. And cast out. And last piece before we go to the next story i want you to notice how little effort jesus put into this miracle right he's in a debate kind of she says yes lord yada yada he says Oh, okay it's fine it's done and he just just turns away there's no show there's no big statement it just happens the next story is going to be kind of the opposite he's going to make a a big small show out of the entire thing why i don't know but notice the parallel Right. And then kind of the cyclical motion of the story as he weaves the sandwich together. Yeah. So uh, they return, verse 31, from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. So we're kind of back near that Gerasenes, Gadarene area. Decapolis is a big stretch on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, basically 10 cities, Decapolis, 10 cities is why it's called that uh, in that area. Uh, still though, Jesus going through Sidon, like, that's like worse than Samaria. What are you doing? It's kind of weird. Um, but he ends up back in this pagan Gentile area. And verse 32, they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And I mentioned now the, the show. It does say taking him aside it's not like he does it in front, but no one's, it's not getting missed either. Taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue and looking up to heaven with a, oh, I lost my spot. There it is. He sighed and he said, Ephatha, which is translated as be open. So Ephatha is Aramaic was a common tongue of the day amongst uh, the rabble, you know, the, the poor of the area. Um, Ephatha, be opened. His ears are opened. His tongue's released. He speaks plainly. It's a miracle. The miracle should stun us. We could spend an hour just marveling at the miracle. But the way the miracle's done is a bit strange, right? What's this about? Fingers and ears and, and hand and spittle on the tongue. And I, I don't know that I can tell you for sure. Uh, but what I see there, what many Lutherans see there, is when Christ decides to do what he wants to do, sometimes he puts something between you and him, which he still uses. Uh, he's going to do it again with the blind man. He's going to put mud on his eyes. I made out of spit in a moment, uh, next week, uh, Wednesday. Uh, but he's going to do it again. He's going to use means to deliver the grace So you can see in this a little bit of what we call word and sacrament theology, that that God attaches signs that are earthly to the words of miraculous promise that he gives. And those signs are themselves miracles. And so, yeah, indeed, Jesus spit on his fingers on your tongue, can make your tongue talk when you never could talk before. Pretty cool. Kind of odd again. More valuable, I hope, for you today is is a little bit of this. And I'm I'm hesitant with this. We Lutherans don't like to talk this way. But what I want you to do, I started the sermon this way, is to see that that you're this guy in this story. I mean, you're the Syrophoenician woman too. But you're this guy, deaf and dumb. And you're also the guy who's going to be blind in a little while. When you read the Bible, there's like two, at least two ways to kind of come at it. One is is a bunch of facts, memorize a bunch of stuff, know all the information, get it right. It's math, right? It's geometry. Got to pass the quiz. And Lutherans, frankly, we we talk that way a lot, uh, and and that's why this other part's kind of uncomfortable because there's this spiritual reality that's going on within your hearts as you read, and it's not just about, about a bunch of facts, and really whatever story you watch, whatever story you read, you know why you like it. Do you know? It's because you think it's about you. You find yourself in the character somehow. And that character's success or failure is yours. You, You own it. You feel it. You live it with them. And you come out on the other side, maybe changed. Okay, well, that's what's supposed to happen. That's what's supposed to happen here, is that this story is about Christ changing you. You are light now, not darkness. You've been declared a Christian by him. And the picture of this change is, well, threefold over the entire course of the story. Uh, once you were blind, but now you see. Once you were deaf, but now you hear. Right? And, and and once you were, you were mute, but now. Now you can sing again. So to see that every time you read the Bible, first, find Christ. He's in the story and he's not you. It is about Jesus, not you. But it's about Jesus for you. And so you're going to be in the story still. It's not about like Jesus and there's no you around. It's you and me and us, the whole church, his bride being called out of darkness and into light, glorified and redeemed, regenerated and reviving. That's all very real. And it's his promise to you again. It's not something you have to achieve. He's declared, this is what's gonna happen to you. You used to not be able to see, now you see Christ. You used to have your ear deafened by the noise of the devil and all his yammering, but now your ears are opened to understand that the word of God is distinct from the word of the world. Right? And now again, your tongue is capable of confessing the truth. Um, I don't know uh, how to how to make this point without going too far, but there's something about human language that is completely busted. Human language is broken. And I'm not just talking the men are from Mars, women are from, from Venus phenomena where we manage to go past each other because we do look at the world differently. But even two guys can talk right past each other. They just keep escalating. They keep talking as if they're being heard, but anybody on the outside knows they're not hearing each other. The language isn't working. There's a babble in the way. And I want to you to believe that this is so much a curse of human language that there is no real truth speaking in all the world until God does it again. Right? So when Babel comes and man is left to fend for himself and and strive through confusion and chaos, again God sends His Spirit. According to his son's work on the cross at the day of Pentecost, to take all of those languages and say, I've got a word that breaks through all of it. And again, remember it is Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. The the words of the Bible, while written in human language and therefore as language, it will grow old. There'll come a civilization that can't read English. And this textbook won't be any good to them until they translate it. Nonetheless, what's translated is true and shall never pass away. These words are more than human language. They are the voice of God that first created the world, that has in Jesus' death redeemed the world, and now as a spiritual reality is regenerating the world by opening your eyes, opening your ears, and loosen your tongue. So that these words that are true, you can, you can say them. Uh, there's, one of the worst things I think that the greater church, the Protestant church did in the last 100, 150 years, is we put such an emphasis on the mission of the church to make more Christians, that we ended up destroying most of the Christians that we had. We spent so much time as a body, as the whole movement throughout Western civilization, telling all of you, go tell people about Jesus, that nobody can really do it anymore. And I think there's something kind of obvious to this. If all I tell you is go tell people about Jesus, how would you know how to do it? But if I tell you about Jesus, you might just tell someone about Jesus because you got told about Jesus. But we've spent all the time saying, tell people about Jesus. So this this hyper-emphasis on mission has closed the mouth of the church. And what I want you, St. Paul Lutheran Church, and anyone listening around the world to, to believe is that you can try to close the mouth of the church. But Jesus is not going to hide. He's not going to stop. He's going to totally surprise you because he's going to open your eyes. He's going to open your ears. And what's going in is going to start to come out of you. Your tongue is going to be loosed. And indeed, St. Paul, I know you as a people, you read your Bibles. You read it out loud. You confess the creed every week, right? So have confidence then. that at the time when it's right to tell your friend, your neighbor, your family member, the truth of God's word, it's going to come out. Because you're a lamp set on a stand and you're, you're a seed planted in the ground. You're, you're inside the body of Jesus Christ, yeah? Opened, Ephetha, you are. Chapter eight, verse one, in those days, a little bit of a shift here in time, yeah? In those days when again, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. Because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, memory holding, you know, forgetting things that just happened a couple of days or a couple of weeks ago is a common thing problem for Americans. So maybe you don't remember, or it's just like kind of a fuzzy memory. No, no, really. He fed 5,000 people just a little bit ago with like five loaves of bread and two fish. Same disciples handed it out, collected 12 baskets full of food afterwards. Guys, what do you mean where are we going to get bread? Don't you know who this guy is? And this is the story. This is Mark's point. He hopes, Mark hopes, you're kind of getting frustrated a little bit. Like, guys, don't you see what's going on? Now, it's all set up again, a little bit, but, uh, oh, I just jumped paragraphs. Let's go back to this one. Um, verse five, and he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples. Ooh. That sounds like something you hear said every week in church. Uh, He gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. So there are fish too there, but not numbered. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. Verse 8. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 men. I think the Greek is clear, men. uh, And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. So in this feeding of 4,000, you don't have a ton change from the feeding of the 5,000 except for the numbers and the location, which includes the kind of baskets that are used. Which It's one of those kind of nerdy facts I, I find it really interesting though so we, we will talk about it but most of the rest of the story is exactly the same that led again i mentioned liberal scholars especially aren't really worth your time but there are scholars out there who say no there this this is just the same story mark was just too much of a primitive person to have understood that he wrote the same story twice he was he was too dumb to know it was the same story. So he put it in twice. That is like with a straight face, maybe a British or a German accent, they make this whole, oh, 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 we're so smart arguments about how, see how dumb it is. There's no difference in the story except the numbers and the location. Well, maybe that's the point. <laughs> maybe Mark wants you to see this. Uh, and indeed, were there two feedings? I think you have to believe historically there's two feedings. 5,000 Jews down in Galilee with five loaves of bread and two fish. And here are 4,000 Greeks, meaning everyone who's not Jewish. 4,000 Greeks with seven loaves of bread and a a few fish. What maybe you can see right away is you're starting with seven and seven both times. You see that? The numbers are, are seven and seven. And yet in the description of the Jewish situation, there's also that number five there, which is that number of woe. We talked about the destruction of the temple. We talked about the end of the old covenant, right? So there's some of that going on. Here I am, you people of woe. I've got the bread out of heaven. Here's the fish to complete it. And what happens at the end? 12 baskets, the 12 tribes of Israel, right? You have the fullness of Israel's being fed by Jesus. That's the feeding of the 5,000. But now you have the fullness of not Israel, 4,000. Four is not the number of woe, it is the number of the earth and the moon, the number of creation, the number of structure. uh, uh, It's about north, south, east, west, uh, the four winds of heaven. So you have that number times a thousand, the, the completion of the nations, the completion of the earth being fed by Jesus with, again, a seven at the start. Seven being the number of holiness, like the Sabbath day, the seventh day set apart and it is holy. Right. So he starts with seven holy. He starts with seven holy. He ends up with the saved of Israel, and now he's going to end up with uh, the saved of the Gentiles. Only it's not a twelve. Again, it's a it's a seven. It's a seven. Uh, uh, it is a holy number. God is making those of the world who have no business, like that Syrophoenician woman, coming to him clean. He is giving them his fullness so that what's left over when Jesus is done is so much righteousness that every cup is overflowing with it. Start to finish, top to bottom. There is no work that is too hard for him to forgive. There is no human who is too weak for him to save. He is here for all. I mentioned the uh, the baskets too, those seven baskets. So if you can imagine, this is kind of the easiest way to see it, There are two different words for basket in the two stories, and one's a a Jewish basket and and one is a Greek basket. They, They had different purposes too, though, so that these seven baskets have a lot more in them than the 12 baskets did. The 12 baskets are small. The seven baskets are huge. So you have an overabundance here now, even more than before, of holiness from the bread that God sent to be life to the world, right? And and then the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Uh, I think in most of the Gospels, the seeking of a sign is very closely tied to the feeding of the 5,000. That is to say that it's right after Jesus gives people a whole lot of bread in an impossible way that the Pharisees Pharisees are like, prove it. Prove yourself to us. And as, and as a reader, you got to be like, but he just, did, were you not what, like what's going on, right? No, 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 no. It's not enough for them. See, they, they still have closed ears. They still got blind eyes and and their mouth speaks only, only lies. So they demand a sign from him. And he, again, sighed deeply. Can, <laughs> he's just like, just tired of them. <laughs> uh, I've answered you before, I've been speaking to you for generations. I know the state of your hearts. Why does this generation seek a sign? That's worth just a moment before we get to the end of all this. Why does this generation seek a sign? I've had more than one encounter in my life with someone who says, if God were real, It would be obvious. If God were real, he would prove it. If God were real, he would show me since I need him too. I demand that he prove himself to me, and if he doesn't, then he's not real. Why does anybody do that? What's going on behind in the darkness of their soul? That Leads them to think that like, they're so special, they can walk out into the madness of this created order. I mean, take away the electricity and the cars and just go walk in the winter night and imagine what it was like to survive a thousand years ago at all. And you're gonna walk out there and ask that the God who made it all prove himself to you, show himself to you or you won't believe it. Okay, well then die in the winter, man really and that is sort of the solution to those who demand a sign from jesus you're not going to get one you're not going to get one other gospels point out oh by the way he died and rose so you did you got one one sign what is it the resurrection of jesus christ that's the sign why won't he prove himself today really i mean he said when he did it then even if someone were to rise from the dead still they wouldn't believe he kind of had a point didn't you now Because it just gets far enough away and we're going to make up the excuse and demand again that God prove himself. Why? What is it about our incurved, self-centered need to be God that would cause us to, again, insist on blindness, deafness, and muteness? And it is, I mean, please understand, it's a form of madness. The carnal flesh is insane. It doesn't care about truth. Doesn't care about whether it's right or wrong. It cares about me. No. So next time someone demands a sign from God in your presence, at least have the wisdom just to let them talk. You know, you don't need to defend, apologize, any. Let them talk. God will answer in the way He'll answer. I, I, did I tell this story last week? We got time. There was a pastor I met back when I was being asked to speak in the Senate a bit. My book broke and went viral in the Senate, and uh, as a result, for like two years, every month I was flying away to speak places. And I met a lot of people. I don't remember this guy's name, uh, but he was a little older than me. You know, I was in my early thirties, so he's in his late thirties, forties, and kind of a, a, a. husky man, kind of competent guy. Um, And he he told me first, thank you for the book, but then also uh, he, he told the story of his conversion. I don't know what brought that out. We're eating dinner. And he's telling the story of his conversion to Lutheranism, which is a conversion to Christianity. And it's because he thinks this girl is cute. And so he goes to church with her. And uh, the pastor at this church was, you know, in his late 50s, early 60s, but had this big old kind of Eastern Orthodox style beard, right? And he's sitting there in his vestments and all this stuff. And uh, he, young man that he is, going out the door, atheist, skeptic, scoffer that he is, thinks it's a bright idea to tell this pastor just so you know, I didn't believe any of that. I'm mainly here for the girl. And, and, and he actually kind of conveys this story to, to the pastor while they're shaking hands in the back. And the pastor, after the guy talks, hi, how you doing? It just blows him off entirely. Doesn't respond a word to the guy, ignores him, won't look him in the eye the rest of the time. Guess what? He went back to church to started listening. <laughs> now, he was so frustrated by the dismissal. And I'm suggesting to you that sometimes the argument is so immature. You just got to dismiss it. And and maybe it's exactly what that person needs at that moment. Now, again, Jesus says there is the one sign. He's going to rise from the dead. That, that's what's going to happen next, right? He's going to get confessed as Christ by Peter. He's going to start telling them, I'm going to go and die and rise. But in the meantime, don't expect the world to change. Don't expect the world to look like Jesus has won. Don't look for signs in this age, but know that you were deaf and you were blind and you were dumb. You're not anymore because you've seen the God and King who is not going to hide, not going to stop, and going to continue to marvelously surprise you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.